there is you know a lot of talk about deglobalization but globalization is far from finished i think what we're really seeing is a new pattern where we're seeing economic fragmentation between certain countries and for certain sectors but at the same time still increasing integration among other countries and for other sectors the aig global trade series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by aig in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade visit www.aig.com/gts the series moderator is rem kortevek of the klingendal institute Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. I'm the host of the Global Trade Series. Today's topic is what trajectory for globalization, the opportunities and risks of regionalization. So, regionalization is a theme we've talked about before on this podcast. Economic nationalism seems to be back with a vengeance. There are concerns about supply chain disruptions. They've increased over the past couple of years. The war in Ukraine has exposed economic dependencies and vulnerabilities. Talk of decoupling has continued. Some even say we are now facing a period of deglobalization. But in these earlier podcasts that we did, we talked about this notion of deglobalization, whether global trade is actually being reordered more along regional lines. So regionalization rather than globalization. But if supply chain disruptions and geopolitical concerns appear to be reinforcing a trend towards greater regionalization, how does that match our understanding of where globalization has come from? Because globalization has perhaps always been driven mainly by regional integration. So what's new? And are we talking about a trend that is structural or one that will blow over? And today we want to focus on the upsides and the downsides of increased regionalization in trade ties. And I'm joined by three experts. I'm really glad that they're here. First of all, from London, I'm joined by Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Marianne is a senior research fellow in the Global Economy and Finance Program at Chatham House. And she's responsible for analysis at the nexus of political and economic issues. She's also the author of a recent Chatham House report entitled Global Trade in 2023, What's Driving Reglobalization? And we'll talk a little bit in a second about what she means by reglobalization. Secondly, from Switzerland, I'm joined by Simon Evenet. Simon is Professor of International Trade and Economic Development at St. Gallen University, and he is the founder of the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. Also the author of a recent report that touches upon this issue. That report is entitled, What Endgame for the Deglobalization Narrative? And last but not least, I'm joined by Lucia Tajoli from Milan. Lucia is full professor in political economics at Politecnico di Milano, and she has a strong focus on trade. And among other things, she works with ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, also in Milan, and with the Italian Trade Agency. She is also the author of a recent piece on the question of regionalization versus globalization. It's called Falling into Pieces, the EU in the Puzzle of Global Trade. So let's get started. Marianne. You've written a report on 
re-globalization. What's re-globalization in this, in this context and what's driving it? Well, I think, first of all, there is, you know, a lot of talk about deglobalization, but globalization is far from finished. I think what we're really seeing is a new pattern where we're seeing economic fragmentation between certain countries and for certain sectors, but at the same time, still increasing integration among other countries and for other sectors. And I think you have to be, you know, really much more nuanced about what we're seeing. Um, I think there is certainly, you know, talk about decoupling, but I think even with regards to China, this full-scale decoupling is neither realistic nor desirable in the end. And yeah, re-globalization, I think, is really the best term to describe these current patterns that we're seeing. But it's not a term that I've come up with. It's actually one that the WTO Director General regularly uses and has promoted. And Simon, um, you've raised this question, what endgame is there for the deglobalization narrative? Well, what is the endgame? Well, that's the striking thing, Rem. The proponents of deglobalization, these are people who, are, who assert that deglobalization is happening or it should happen, are very silent on where the endgame is. And they don't tell us what this means for the World Trade Organization, they don't tell us what this actually means for regional trading agreements either. And I have my strong suspicion that is because they don't like either of those things, but they're not prepared to go on record saying so. So instead, you have this rather, I would say, half-baked approach where you describe a few things based on anecdotes, draw out a few lessons, try and generalize, but not bite the bullet in terms of saying what this really means for public policy. There's often a lot of recommendations for businesses to shorten their supply chains, take factories out of China, things like this. But they're actually quite silent on what public policy needs to be in order to deglobalize. And, uh, and I think that's because I think they know that the moment they start articulating this, a lot of people are going to say, wait a minute, we're not signing up for that. And Lucia, um, you've looked at globalization versus regionalization. Where do you come out in that, uh, in that dynamic? Well, this is another point of debate that has been around for a very long time, whether regionalization is helping or hindering globalization and how the two can get along together. Now, I look at the issue very much from a, a European perspective. And within the European Union, integration has been very, very strong. And for many firms, for many countries, integration within the European region has been really a way to learn how to get further away, to get to faraway markets and to become more global. So for Europe, certainly, I wouldn't say that in the past there was a conflict between further regional integration and globalization. Things are changing in the recent past because of some of uh, of the changes in the world uh, and changes in world markets. So I think that there is currently a debate in Europe on whether further regional integration should be pursued at the expenses of globalization. I don't think this is the way to go personally, but uh, certainly this is a, a, a new debate in Europe, I would say. And what do you see in terms of the actual volumes of trade? Do you see more regionalization happening and less intercontinental trade taking off? It's difficult to give a, a, an answer to this question because it really depends on which figure you look at and how you look at the figure. In absolute terms, yes, 
there is more regionalization, and this is driven by some specific areas. And also, uh, we need to remember that part of what we are used to call globalization has been a very strong increase of trade between China and the number of other trade partners outside of the Asian region. So this is what we've been calling in terms of data globalization for a long time. Now, this has declined, certainly, because China uh, has reached its peak in terms of trade. But if we look at the data in relative terms, so if we look how much countries are trading uh, in the relative terms, uh, we really see that it's difficult to say that regionalization is sharply increasing. And Marianne, in your in your analysis, you describe how a certain degree of decoupling is is happening primarily because of geopolitical reasons. Is that what's what makes this current phase in global trade unique, or are there other drivers which you would highlight that are relevant to understand this trend towards more? diversification in a regional context? Well, I think there's certainly efforts to strengthen supply chain resilience, nearshoring, friendshoring. So, you know, the, the role that government intervention plays in this um, much more significant than perhaps just um, the role that you know, the private sector is taking. But I think there's also other trends going on besides these geopolitical dynamics that drive regionalization, just to point out three of them. You know, climate change is perhaps the most important one. We have extreme weather events that are the biggest threat to supply chains in the coming years. And this fear of more frequent business interruptions to long-distance trade could drive a greater emphasis on regionalization. Um, the second one is, I think, shifting social values and consumer preference for more sustainable products. And that often goes hand-in-hand hand with a preference for products that are more locally or more regionally produced. And then last but not least, technological change is important because that allows for the production to take place closer to home or closer in the region. Again, some of these structural trends have been going on for, for quite a while. And, you know, regionalized trade is not new, but there is certain dynamics that are new in that regard. And I think the, the key point here is that it's less about economic fundamentals driving regionalization, so low labor cost arbitrage, but this extent to which companies factor in the geopolitical tensions um, is, is new. Is it driven primarily by government action or does this emerge bottom up through through the companies themselves? Sort of is it enforced, this degree of resorting more towards regional trade ties? Or is this something that the private sector itself is is also concluding because it makes, I don't know, supply chains more robust? Well, I think it's both, but government intervention seems to be the increasingly dominant factor and ultimately shapes, you know, business decisions by providing incentives or providing constraints. And I think that, um, again, is, is the new factor. Lucia? I just wanted to take up on uh, the technology effects on, on trade, because it is certainly true that we've been seeing new technologies allowing to increase our local production and, re and shorten value chains across the world. But at the same time, we have new technologies that, in fact, have helped to reach further away markets. I'm thinking about uh, cross-border e-commerce, uh, digital trade, 
And this type of uh, links that are now connecting in many cases directly producers to consumers very far away in the world. So I think that the evolution of technology is not clear where it's bringing us in terms of regionalization or globalization. So I, I think it, it, we, we will play a very important role in the evolution of trade that we will see in the future years. That, that's interesting because it suggests that this could back, actually be a more temporary phenomenon rather than something that's structural. Uh, Simon? I think when we talk about the private sector's response, I think what we're seeing is a reassessment of the types of risks and on the tolerance for risks. And I think the responses really defy generalization, even in the area of trading goods. And so I think he was beginning to see some companies saying to their suppliers, yes, we want you in the same uh, continent because we would need you to be able to supply our factories within five or 12 hours. So this would be a factor pulling production closer back to um, their sort of final end use. But on the other hand, we have other companies who must be worried about they have over-regionalized. Think of all those German car companies which were sourcing lots of parts from Ukraine and possibly wish now that they were sourcing them from China. And so I think that the right lens to look at this is, is on recalibration of risk management by the private sector. And I think that plays out in lots of different ways because the starting points were very different across sectors. When it comes to the government's actions, here um, there's a lot of talk but not much action. And uh, you can certainly point to some very sensitive sectors like uh, semiconductors, where there's been some very invasive policy. You might also point to measures taken, say, by the EU to try and build up uh, medical uh, stores and, and stockpiles. But beyond this, you don't really see many invasive policies which have actually translated into action on the ground. And this, I think, why, Rem, your question about is this a temporary phenomenon is a really good one, because I think governments may have talked a lot about resilience of supply chains in 2020, 2021, 2022, but this really hasn't translated much into aggressive changes in policy. And so whether that dies a death and we're left with the private sector response, I think is the open question. I mean, any thoughts on, on whether that will be temporary or not? I think that the very fact that this is that trying to minimize risks of either disruption or you know, like is, is so sector specific, sometimes even product specific, probably means that when government officials start digging into the details, there really isn't a very, there isn't a very simplistic 140 character solution to these problems. And this is why I think these discussions quickly die a death. And you had um, all sorts of initiatives in 2020. Which, uh, which, which went away. I think the UK one was called Project Defend, which uh, once the details started being worked through, people began to realize this was actually very hard to pull off. So I think uh, in, in assessing these policy dynamics, Rem, don't just look at the initial outrage and outpouring of shock from policymakers and from business journalists and like, then look to see how much does this translate into uh, into policies on the ground, policy change on the ground. I'm not sure we're seeing uh, so much of that, at least insofar as the pandemic response and geopolitical response is outside of, of a few sectors which are just super sensitive. And of course, I mean, to your, to your point, uh, the fact that um, the US and China, which are arguably the most 
engaged in rhetoric about decoupling. In 2022, their bilateral merchandise trade was record level 690 billion US dollars. And so that goes against the grain that of decoupling and fragmentation. At the same time, if we imagine that the business journalists and the politicians are, are, are right, let's imagine that for a second. And we are moving towards a world which is much more based around blocks trading within each other rather than with each other. What's bad about that? Marianne, what, what are the geopolitical implications of an overly regionalized trade system? Well, I think one of the things that you miss out on, for example, is really the ability to tackle global problems. Climate change, you know, pandemics certainly come to mind. There's also the potential that you lose on economies of scale, so you have higher costs or productivity is slower. And I think more broadly speaking, that ties to this you know, debate around French shoring, which is about running your supply chains only through countries that are, you know, your close political partners. But how close will they be, you know, in the short term, perhaps not so much in the long term? That's a question. And then this whole issue around what happens to those countries that are not your friends, those particularly in the developing world that perhaps need trade the most in order to develop economically, those are, you know, left out. So I think there are some, some real problems with, with French shoring at the same time, um, I think you know, there's advantages of, of working more closely together with like-minded partners, not so much in the area of you know, striking new free trade deals, because particularly for the U.S., we are past that point, but to work more closely on, on some of those issues that you, know, you just need cooperation on supply chain resilience is you know, perhaps the most important one. Well, yeah, Lucia, I wanted to get your thoughts on this as well, because as you say, you've looked primarily at the EU. What I know about the EU's economic composition is that it's heavily reliant on exports. What what would a a regionalized, kind of fragmented trade system mean for for the EU? It would certainly be very, very costly, because this would... Uh, turn out into a situation in which many firms would have to choose whether to trade westward or eastward with the U.S. or with China in case of a full decoupling. And even in the case of development of different technological systems, different communication systems, etc., would, this would imply that firms would have to decide whether they adopt the technology of one side of one block or the technology of another. And therefore, their commitment toward a given partner would make much more difficult to turn to the other type of partner in case. So you would have a, a duplication of costs, a duplication of efforts, potentially a duplication of some uh, technologies. If we think uh, about uh, the possibility of having two different uh, internets, if you want, for example, two different telecommunication systems that do not talk to each other and are uh, really separated among blocks, this would be very would make things very very costly because you would have either to choose or duplicate everything. So Europe has this disadvantage of, in some technologies, not being the primary developer of some of these technologies. And as long as one technological development, one technological path has been developed for the whole world, this has made life easier. But now, if we really think about the coupling seriously, 
that would be extremely costly, I would say. There are two big disadvantages for Europe regionalizing further, or at least concentrating its future growth prospects on within its own region. The first is we are an aging, slowing, growing, slow growing region. So unless you're in the market for selling wheelchairs, I really don't want to see, I can't see why you would want to tie your growth prospects to this peripathetic region. That's the first thing. The second thing is that regionalization, further regionalization will expose us to regional shocks. And we've just lived through a massive regional energy shock. Do we, I mean, the energy, the inflation response of the last past 12 months would have been even greater if we'd sourced more from within our own region. So I simply can't see why this makes any sense for the European uh, continent. But the, the Americans and the Chinese might think differently, right? They might say, well, you know, duplication, that's, that's just the price of, of geopolitical competition. I agree. I mean, look, other countries are free to make, or, or other regions are, are free to make their own mistakes, but I don't think Europe should necessarily copy them. I mean, I agree, the American economy and the Chinese economy are very large, and they have their own internal growth dynamics, perhaps a little stronger than our own growth dynamics. But uh, I think uh, you know, they are undertaking some pretty costly policies, which are holding back their growth in their living standards. And are they, in a way, forcing the EU's hand, Marianne? Well, I think you really have to look at specific sectors, um, and you can you know, have this broad brush approach. Um, overall, the EU's trade with China, for example, has increased despite the EU obviously having very close political ties to the United States and being caught in this strategic competition between the US and China. But you know, as I've said before, I don't think that this full decoupling from China is going to happen. I think what we're going to see instead is varying degrees of disintegration and integration. So we really have to look at specific sectors, um, strategic sectors that are vital to national security, so take arms or advanced technologies. I think for those, trade and investment is going to be off limits. Then you have sensitive sectors, critical raw materials fall in that category or you know, pharmaceuticals. And I think there, this effort and the emphasis on shifting supply chains away from China will continue. But then in the third category, for most economic sectors, I think trade and investment ties are going to continue, broadly speaking, as before, with perhaps two caveats. And those are that, um, you know, even for those non-critical and non-sensitive sectors like furniture, appliances, electronic toys, you name it, if there are concerns around human rights violations, then, you know, you don't have this, this trade continue as before. And the other caveat, I think, is very much concerns around um, China exploiting economic links through coercive tactics. And again, you know, we've seen that with Australia, we've seen that with Lithuania. So there's real concerns around that, even for those non-sensitive and non-critical sectors. But um, overall, I think you know, supply chain diversification will be seen as beneficial for all sectors, but you really have to look at those specific sectors. Yeah, and with diversification, that's also where the the re and re-globalization comes in, I, I, I assume. So what we're seeing is both a process of fragmentation and and integration taking place. To my et eternal shame, I've tried to coin the phrase fragmentigration to cover this, which luckily no one picked up on. But it, it does sort of kind of capture these countervailing trends in, in the global trade system. One area I'm fascinated by, because 
in my mind, that's where everything comes together most pronounced is in East Asia, where you have that geopolitical centrifugal forces, and at the same time, these economically integrating forces around around the Chinese market. I don't know who of you three want to comment on this, but it seems like if we are facing a trend towards regionalization, the rubber meets the road in East Asia. That's where the real tensions will emerge. I, am I right? or or And how should we understand that? I agree totally with uh, your idea that the area to keep an eye on is that, and maybe even more than East Asia, I would talk about the area that extends from uh, Central Asia, India. Uh, India, we didn't talk about it much, but uh, it's a huge country. It has its own very strong regional ties, and it's looking for partners, I would say. So it will drive part of the regionalization trend in the whole of Asia, given its size. And another part of the region that it's uh, a little bit uh, difficult to read at uh, these times is Japan. So the whole area that stretches from India to Japan, I think it will evolve quite a lot in the future. And those are countries that we'll have in case of regionalization, increased regionalization, increased fragmentation, more or less decide where to stay, where to go. And it's not obvious what will happen, but certainly it's the area that we need to look at. And of course, the other big area that is a very big question mark is Africa, of course. But Africa might well be sort of the exception because everything you see coming out of Africa these days regarding big trade initiatives is all about integration. It's all about we want to do more with each other. We won't do, won't, don't want to do less with each other. If there are cheerleaders for globalization these days, I, I feel they're, they're, they're in Africa. What does increased regionalization or falling back on regional trading blocks, what's that going to do to our multilateral institutions that work on trade? So the obvious start of an answer would be, well, it's bad news for the WTO if we start to think more in regional trading blocks. But is that true? And what could fill its its place? Simon. So to the extent that the WTO is not seen as the solution to key problems for policymakers, there will be a problem. But I don't think it necessarily has to play out uh, that way. You are going to have a, you know, integration within regions. There will be interest in the developments there. There will be dis- deliberations, transparency. You know, trade policy reviews, all of that will, I think, uh, be will stay on the boil. I think where the WTO can still play a huge role is not in trading with goods, actually, more in trade and services and digital trade, where uh, you may get um, actually weaker regional dynamics. Because, of course, if you're a fantastic digital services exporter from India, you can probably sell into any English-speaking country around the world. And so I think the WTO's future could well be in shaping the rules for that type of um, uh, trade and accept that what's in place for trading goods is largely set and done for the moment and move into the services and digital domains where there's so much to be done. And and in previous podcasts, we've also talked about the rise of sort of plurilateral frameworks that then set the rules of the road, sort of one level below the full 160-member-plus framework of the WTO. Is that something that we should be putting our our hope on? I think that's certainly true that you have, again, this emphasis on working amongst a group of like-minded partners that have you know, shared ambition, particularly in the area of, of digital trade. 
So I think, you know, on the one hand, we have this trend towards increased regional trade, but I think it's also very much the emphasis on, on digital trade and those, you know, are going hand in hand. I think it's very much an area where you can update rules to make trade fit for purpose for the 20th, uh, 21st century at a time when the WTO BD is not the primary foreign for trade negotiations. Um, so, you know, I think that that can be a stepping stone, but the key part is that there has to be scope to multilateralize that down the road. So how do you then multilateralize these regional or sectoral agreements? Well, I guess some in some respects, they just set a standard that others then simply adopt, right? I think there's a lot of uh, exploring going on, exploration going on, and people are feeling, so, you know, it's almost like cr- trying to cross a river, touching one stone at a time. And countries, I think, are still trying to figure out what their comfort levels are with different types of regulation and then different types of collaborative arrangements. And so that that organic process will take time. Inevitably, there will be some countries in the vanguard who will then form small groups. Those groups may expand. Whether this ends up multilateralized, um, who knows? But I think that's the natural trajectory for digital trade. Lucia, any thoughts on this? Uh, well, in, in digital trade, there are still many, many rules to be written. And uh, I am a bit concerned about that because so far, it seems that the priorities of the different areas in writing the rules are quite different. Uh, we have seen this already. And this is very much regionalized in that respect. Uh, the rules on digital trade in Europe are following uh, logics that are quite different from the rules that are set in the U.S., or the ones that are set in East Asia, especially in China. So at the moment, we really need, as we have for very traditional trade in manufactured goods, some common rules to have an international market in digital trade, but we don't have them. And the path that has been followed, it's not really, I must say, reassuring, precisely because apparently the different priorities appear to be different. We know Europe protects uh, citizens' privacy to a very large extent, more than in the U.S. In the U.S., rules tend to protect uh, firms' uh, capacity to do business. In Asia, and especially in China, there are other types of concerns. So it will really take a lot of time to reconcile these different trajectories, I would think. So Lucia is right that there are differences in regimes for digital trade across the world, but I would urge everyone to watch what's going on in the G7, where Japan is trying to bridge the um, certainly the differences across the Atlantic in some areas, in particular data-related areas. And if Japan can pull this off with its G7 partners, then we might start seeing a process snowballing rather quickly. And so I think this year will be very interesting to determine whether or not there's much hope in that, or whether we will fragment into four or five internets. That's interesting. I see a lot of nods on the screen in front of me, but is the G7 a block of its own? I mean, it's not a regional grouping, of course, but it does collect a number of like-minded, highly developed economies that think very similarly about um, supply chain vulnerabilities that have an interest in also moving forward with digital services trade and sort of setting the standards, they have as obvious disadvantage that they're that they don't combine any of the countries of the global south. But is the G7 perhaps this forum where you could see a pan-regional 
group emerge much more than it has over the over the past couple of years? I think the answer is yes. Um, and the G7 is in many ways being the big winner out of the post-invasion uh, fallout from last year because the G20 has um, further lapsed into abeyance. The G7 appears to have much more coherence, at least amongst uh, its member governments. You're quite right to argue that it does. it is uh, far from representative of the entire globe, but it does still represent quite a large chunk of world GDP. And I think the other big advantage the G7 has is it doesn't do binding trade agreements. It doesn't have a dispute settlement mechanism. It doesn't have the paraphernalia of trade law. It just has its officials which are trying to find modes of cooperation which are different from this. So again, I don't want to come across as a salesperson for the G7, but I do think as an analyst, it's actually rather an interesting forum to watch and has become a lot more interesting in the past 365 days. Marianne? Well, I think certainly in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the emphasis on the G7 cannot be overstated, particularly when it comes to cooperation on sanctions, for example. But there is also, I think, a broader trend towards having more informal and flexible mechanisms of cooperation. And to some extent, there is a regional element to that, you know, thinking of the Indo-Pacific economic framework for the U.S. or the U.S.-led Indo-Pacific economic framework, for example. The Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council, again, another one where you have the U.S. and the EU come together to sort out some of their differences, but the key ambition really is to work on some future-oriented areas where there's, you know, greater commonalities. So I think, again, what we're seeing is this configuration of, of different mechanisms for cooperation. And the key is, you know, linking those up so you don't have the same conversations just with different configurations of players. So final question, how, how do we convince policymakers and politicians not to put all their belief in this idea that decoupling and nearshoring or reshoring is the solution to dealing with the concerns they have regarding supply chain vulnerabilities. Because one of the things that strikes me interacting with policymakers in the Netherlands is that they believe that you can create a China-sized hole in your value chain, and that's it. Or that you can bring production back, and then you're fixed. So what is the narrative we use to say that there is actually, there are downsides to over-regionalization and that there is an upside to actually maintaining a degree of interaction, also diplomatically, with production centers across the world? Lucia. Well, to me, we had a very, very clear uh, recent example, unfortunately, of how risky regionalization can be. Germany that has uh, gone regional in getting most of its energy uh, resources from Russia has clearly faced a high level, a very high level of risk. So I think that one important argument is uh, remind politicians that in order to reduce risk, you need to diversify. And regionalization goes into the opposite direction. You want to diversify sources, you have to maximize the number of potential suppliers or potential markets where you can go. And this is especially true in turbulent times when things are unstable. This is when you want to diversify more. And this is really going against regionalization. It might be costly, but it's paying off. Like 
in a financial portfolio, it normally pays off. This would be the argument I would tend to use. Yeah, I, I would argue that the, the emphasis should be on risk management and uh, risk reduction, not on sweeping slogans about neighbors, allies. This is not the right organizing logic. The right organizing logic is risk reduction. And I think, as Lucia has suggested, we need to have a list of examples where regionalization has exposed Europe to incredible risks, uh, which it has then suffered from. And the, you know, the leading example, clearly, is the overdependence on Russia for energy. Is there any historical parallel that we can also think of, or of longer, longer back? I'm just thinking out loud here, where an over-regionalization actually created also political risks. Are you thinking of Brexit in particular, where there's concerns around that? Oh, I, ooh, I didn't even want to go there, Marianne. Wow. No, but perhaps just coming back to that point of the the new narrative. I, I do think that re-globalization, you know, captures not only what we're seeing in the sense of this fracturing and integration going on at the same time, but re-globalization also in the sense to really try to harness the transition to green and digital economies, to harness the, you know, social dynamics that um, are underpinning of all of that to, you know, make sure that ultimately trade benefits all. So I think Having that as the overarching framework would be quite helpful. Maybe the way to put this is that you know, risk reduction doesn't come for free. Insurance is never free. And the cost of uh, risk reduction may well be foregone opportunities for growth in, in markets outside of Europe. And getting that balance between you know, where do you want to enhance risk management versus which opportunities you're going to forego in doing so, that is at the core of the policy challenge. Terrific. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. So we covered a lot of ground. We tried to tease out the question, what trajectory for globalization, focusing on the opportunities and risks of regionalization, or perhaps I should say better, over-regionalization. Because a degree of regionalization will continue, just as diversification will ensure that global trade remains interconnected across, across the globe. Thank you very much to Lucia Tajoli, Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, and Simon Evenet. Please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com gts or simply access them through the platform you usually, you usually use for your podcasts. Take care. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG the Aspen Institute, Germany, SEBRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.